0: Welcome to Phone Messages, Episode 46, Memo Function. My name is Paul Mason Foch. This week's message is most likely an unintended artifact from my process of duplicating messages back in the late 80s. As I have mentioned in earlier episodes... I did not make copies of every message left on my answering machine, but instead selected ones that I found interesting. However, because the process of copying cassettes was not precise, sometimes I captured elements of the original tape that were not intended. For the purpose of this podcast, I think it is interesting to play back these random fragments of the past. The fragment I will play this week is actually two fragments of the same recording, and it comes from either the fall of 1988 or the winter of 1989. The total recording is about seven seconds long. Let's hear it. Hello, this is just a test. Seeing that, seeing that my memo function indeed. So, this is what's going on. At some point, I wanted to test the memo function of my answering machine, and in the process of duplicating incoming messages, fragments of this test were also duplicated several times. The recording I just played contained two of these fragments. As I mentioned way back in episode six, I purchased this answering machine secondhand at Chicago's famous Maxwell Street Flea Market. I am pretty sure it was a Panasonic Easyphone, although I am not sure which model. I did not have the manual, but through trial and error, I figured out how to operate the machine. One of the buttons was labeled memo. So the recording we heard was a result of me experimenting with this function. Originally, I thought that the main purpose of the memo function would be to leave a message for family members or others sharing a household. But then I realized, if the machine was used in a place of business, the memo function could also serve to record dictation. In fact, since the machine allowed messages to run as long as there was space on the tape, with a standard cassette, you could leave a 45-minute memo. The first dictation devices can be traced back to Thomas Edison's invention of the phonograph in 1877. The original tinfoil cylinders had poor sound quality, so Edison imagined the machine primarily to record speech, not music. Alexander Graham Bell's Volta Laboratory improved upon the technology by developing wax cylinders, which became the standard for dictation machines in the 1880s. The dominant manufacturer of these machines in the 20th century was a spin off of Columbia Records called Dictaphone, and Dictaphone became the generic name for these machines. In the classic 1944 film noir, Double Indemnity, Walter Neff narrates his confession into a Dictaphone. By the end of the film, there are multiple cylinders lying on his desk, since the maximum recording time was only 10 minutes. After World War II, the Dictaphone Corporation developed a machine that recorded on vinyl belts. These were lightweight and much easier to file than wax cylinders. In the 1960s, IBM introduced a dictating machine that used a magnetic belt instead of a vinyl belt. I remember my father using one of these in his law office in the 1970s. An instructional manual from this time period shows the machine on a desk next to horn-rimmed glasses and a pipe sitting in an ashtray just as would have been found in my father's office. The primary disadvantage of the IBM Belts was their limited recording time, which was 14 minutes. So eventually they were replaced by cassette and then digital recorders. At the same time, the rise of word processors reduced the need for transcription. Legal documents, for example, could be constructed in a template that required minimal modification according to the case. Okay, that's it for this week. If you would like to participate in this podcast or have comments, please contact me through my website, pfoch.com. That's P F O T S C H.com. Thanks for listening.